2020 woke with a rising sun. And yet, it refuses to set until its demands are met. And so, we stage a contest. Gone are the undercard, the hints, the trends, the distractions. We now join our fight at its most vital stage, the election of the President of the United States of America. The most powerful position in the free world will be decided by the people in an open election. And while that sounds simple, the distance between here and there is treacherous. First, we will find our challenger. Dozens have stated their claim, and yet only a handful have a true opportunity. Will it be the familiar, a famous name with a resume longer than any who dare challenge him, a folksy charmer, surely in his last act, a familiar face from a treasured era? Will it be the reformer, a feisty foe of the banking class, who hopes to pair her energetic message with a savvy campaign to save capitalism from itself? Will it be the future, a young blank slate who hopes to use the experience of the field to his advantage, a servant to the wars they voted to fund, come to try his hand for the big job? Will it be Amy Klobuchar? Or will it be the revolutionary, a man leading a movement that will never second guess? Can he possibly succeed in bringing the nation a question on socialism? Whomever among them or those yet to fully emerge will have to face a nearly impossible task. Unseating a sitting president in what appears to be sunny economic times, yet this is no normal president, electrifying to his followers, reviled by his enemies, a man who knows only one political style, uncensored, unrestricted conflict. The sun refuses to set on 2020 until our contest yields a champion, and so we begin. Ladies and gentlemen, for the first time in the year 2020, I am thrilled to say that it is at the largesse of those that support us at TakePoliticsSeriously.com that I welcome you to Politics, Politics, Politics. My name is Justin Robert Young. Hell of a year 2019 was. Hell of a time treading water. But folks, wear off the soft stuff. Oh yeah, inject it into my veins. It's election year time, and I could not be more jacked up! 
Oh, my God. So thrilled. So excited. I don't know if I've ever been more excited for an election year. Because even 2016, I thought it was going to be boring. I thought it was going to be the epitome of boring. It was going to be Clinton versus Bush. Snooze. Now, I would find a reason to get excited about it, but I knew most people probably wouldn't, and they'd tune out, and it would become really predictable, and, and then that would be that. But then 2016 turned out to be really unpredictable and crazy. But we're going to get to see a fully prepared Donald Trump campaign, <laughs> which... God knows where that leads. I don't know whether or not that makes him more or less volatile. And meanwhile, I think we have a tremendously interesting race here on the Democratic side. In fact, we're going to get into that a little bit. Uh, we have the end of Q4 for the FEC deadline. That passed along with uh, 2019. And so we have some self-reported numbers to go over. And we are going to discuss the soon-to-be-reheated impeachment. But first, we begin with Mayor Pete. Or should I say soon-to-be-former Mayor Pete. He actually will no longer be the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, as of Wednesday, today. Uh, as his predecessor will be signed in. But, yeah, colloquially, he's Mayor Pete. He's also the leader in Iowa, according to the Real Clear Politics average. He is two points up on Bernie Sanders as we speak, although we should get some new Iowa polling in soon. You would assume, uh, you know, hopefully within the next few days, because that January debate deadline is, is on the 10th, and we've had, like, no new <laughs> early state polls in, like, a month in, in, in certain cases. So we'll get a little bit uh, more on exactly how well Pete is doing now. But I do think that he is, in my mind, in this, like, NASCAR scrum of cars screaming down the track, he is the most pivotal in my mind. Number one, because he does certainly seem to have a edge right now in Iowa. And if he wins in Iowa, Mayor Pete is no longer just an interesting idea. If he wins in Iowa, he becomes a legitimate threat. And here's why. Because he will replace Biden as the centrist candidate. Now, we can get into what the hell Elizabeth Warren is doing in, in a second. But for, for my money right now, there are three people vying for that centrist lane. The most famous is Joe Biden. Then there's Mayor Pete. And then there's whatever the hell Amy Klobuchar is doing. Beyond that, man, I, I, I don't buy the clobe, the clobe momentum, you know? And I say that now. I'm sure that there's probably going to be a poll that comes out in Iowa tomorrow that shows that Amy Klobuchar is leading everybody by 20 points or something. But I don't necessarily buy it. I think if she was going to catch on, she would have caught on by now. Mayor Pete's that dude. He's younger. And right now, he's playing the game very well. 
We don't have a high threshold for experience in our modern political meta. He is exploiting that. And yet, the biggest sign that I take for his success thus far, at least, is the hate he inspires. Because he is inspiring a tremendous amount of hate from the people that he wants to hate him. Specifically the progressives, which considering we have no idea what the hell Elizabeth Warren is doing right now, I will define as the supporters of Bernie Sanders. Politico has a story about this today, and specifically the writer of said story, Derek Robertson, uh, specifically makes the case that the issue with Mayor Pete for the progressive left is not necessarily even that he would be a threat to Bernie Sanders, although that is undeniably a part of it, but more that he represents an existential threat. That the progressive left might not own the youth in the way that it believes it does. Now, by the numbers, under 30 voters are rabid for Sanders. And yet, here is this millennial, two years younger than Macaulay Culkin, who is the most successful millennial so far in this early stage to run for president. He cuts a figure far more like neoliberal corporatist Democrats like Clinton and Obama than the new and improved, in the eyes of the progressives, insurgent mold that seems to be pumping out folks like AOC and the squad. So if he succeeds, what does that mean for the rise of democratic socialism? Now, I don't know if I totally buy that. I, I, I certainly think that there is a, that, that is not a terrible take. But I do believe that Bernie Sanders supporters are very, 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 very keen on who they need to attack. It's been interesting watching my timeline, which is filled disproportionately with Bernie Sanders folks, to see where that eye of Sauron has kind of trailed. And we talked about it with Jack Allison a couple weeks ago. That it was Beto for a little bit. And now it's Mayor Pete. The common thread is that both of these candidates are the wet dream of a certain kind of political operative. For the sake of argument, I'm going to call them Pod Save America. These are professional campaign staff types that go from person to person to person, swinging from vine to vine, hoping that this one stays connected to the canopy longer than the others. And so they tend to gravitate toward the demographics, the metaphorical five-star recruit out of high school, somebody with all the tools to grow in to somebody that could be a winner. Mayor Pete has that. And more specifically, he's got what I've described here before as the story. 
the feel-good story of electing the first gay president. And that is a glittering little trinket. And it's the kind of thing that boils the blood of the progressives. Because boy, howdy, have they had enough of glittering trinkets. Things that are there to make you feel better and then have any of the policy goals that you're really serious about that you feel desperately need to be enacted pushed aside and continue to have a laundry list of things that you're not in love with, including drone strikes and not closing Guantanamo Bay, all the progressive promises that are made during a campaign, just kind of shuffled. So in a fully unscientific, anecdotal experiment, I I went on my Twitter today and I asked for people that hate Mayor Pete what they hate about him. So I'm going to read some of these tweets right here. Uh, He's got disgusting views on the rights of convicts and ex-cons. And I don't know, he feels disingenuous with everything he says. Like he's telling us what we want to hear with no regard to ever follow up. But I guess that's just politicians in general, I guess. So we start here with a, a, a policy thing. Something that like I mentioned in my battle hem at the beginning of this podcast is kind of to his advantage. He doesn't have a tremendous record and therefore he's not going to get attacked on much. Now that does mean that we're going to get obsessed with like who he worked for when he was at McKinsey because he doesn't have a lot to go on. And so what does exist will be combed through meticulously. But in general, I think we get to in this tweet what the major issue is, that he feels like a triangulating politician. He might be a more competent Hillary, but yet that same idea of only surface-level care for the issues that really matter to progressive voters remains. Here's another one along the same lines. Most of his policies are conspicuously right of center, which is interesting because I don't think that they're right of the full center. They're certainly to the right of Bernie Sanders, which I think is is probably more to the point here. His corporate ties are hypocritical at best. His position on Medicare for all is laughable and his record as mayor is not great. His record with people of color is even worse. That being said, milquetoast centrists are easy to hate. And then there's one thing that kept coming up. And I'd like to hang a lantern on it real quick. Because one thing that I very much believed helped Trump against Clinton was that in our internet age where we know more about each other than we ever have, that there might be a widening or shifting of the Overton window of how much authenticity matters in politics. How much it actually will energize your audience if they genuinely believe that you believe what you're saying. That's usually been a luxury. Usually you can craft a brand, and and that's why we got such a risk-averse style of politics for the past several decades. But now, Bernie voters love Bernie because they believe down to their bones that he believes what he's saying. In fact, you want to know who else 
believes that uh, Bernie Sanders believes what he's saying. St. Joseph's High School student, Pete Buttigieg, who won the John F. Kennedy Library Profiles Encourage Essay Contest that he wrote about Bernie Sanders. Somebody sent me this. I had never read this. Thank you so much to whoever got this to me on Twitter. But he goes through why Bernie Sanders is an important, brave politician. Is Mayor Pete? We don't know. Again, his lack of record is both his strength and his weakness. But let me just read some of the tweets that came in about whether or not the more time you spend with Pete, you think that you believe in him or not. Here's the first one. To me, he's the epitome of an empty shell neoliberal politician. He spent more time talking about what can't happen rather than what can. He comes off as insincere in everything he says, and his lack of support from people of color proved to me that he's not electable. I severely dislike him because he reminds me of a televangelist. He bashes on Christians while pretending to be holier than thou. Not to mention he has zero gravitas policy or command. He's an empty suit. And here's my favorite. He's totally that kid in high school that was in 10 different clubs, not because he enjoyed them or even enjoyed the people in them, but just because he wanted more extracurriculars for his college application. Yes, the insult to Mayor Pete is that he is Tracy Enid Flick from election. So going forward... This is the question about Mayor Pete. Can he survive in a world where people don't inherently know when they look at him, either based on his record or his tone, that he believes what he says? Because in my mind, after Trump, that was now more and more of a prerequisite. It's part of the reason why I picked Bernie Sanders to get the nomination. And by the end of spring, Mayor Pete's going to tell us whether or not I was right. Politics! All right, friends, I would like to remind you that you can support this show by heading on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Again, TakePoliticsSeriously.com. All right. We're definitely doing Iowa. We're definitely doing Nevada. That is the first and third uh, contest in our primary schedule. They're both caucuses. But if you want to get me out to New Hampshire, if you want to get me out to South Carolina, well, there's one way you can do it. Head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com right now and support us. We've had gigantic support here. I really appreciate it. Uh, especially during the holidays, man. We have not had a down month yet uh, 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 since things started really heating up toward the middle of, of last year, and I suspect we're only going to keep growing. So if that is the case, then, man, I would love to just do more. If you're part of the $3 Club, you get two bonus podcasts, one on Monday, one on Thursday. And those I've been trying to do uh, different and interesting things with just to prepare us to make sure that we get really good on the road coverage. I don't want on the road coverage that is 
less than what I'm doing here in the studio. I want to bring you guys into this. I want to be your correspondent on the ground doing any and everything that you would want. So, if that's something that interests you, consider heading on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. One more thing. Raise the Dead, my brand new history podcast, just released episode five yesterday. Very proud of that one. It might be my favorite podcast that I've ever done. But we have the ebook out now, the ebook of official transcripts. So you can read the transcript from the final episode. You can read the bonus episode that is not going to go in the uh, official podcast feed. You can read all that with our official full transcript ebook. You can get that at raisethedeadpodcast.com. Search for it on Amazon, Raise the Dead, Nixon vs. Kennedy, The Complete Transcripts. And if you have Kindle Unlimited, you can read it for free. I still get paid, so it's fine. It's totally cool. But you can go ahead and get it for free right now at Kindle Unlimited. Raise the Dead, Nixon versus Kennedy, The Complete Transcripts. Also, we got named to a best of list. Literally on the last day of the year, we got named to a best of 2019 list, which just made my heart sing. I was so thrilled, and we've been getting uh, just these great little tidbits. I don't know. I got a good feeling that once this is all out and everybody can binge it, this is going to be something that kind of catches word of mouth. So continue to spread the word. Thank you guys for supporting it. Let's get back to PX3. Politics! So last night, I was sitting around, drinking, watching CNN, which is maybe my favorite night of television of the year. CNN decides that they are going all in on drunken buffoonery. Uh, Anderson Cooper, Andy Cohen, the blonde lady, the other blonde lady, Don Lemon. They all just sit around and drink. It is on that night that I cross my fingers and hope that this indeed will be the year that CNN realizes that they need to have 364 days of drunken buffoonery and one day of serious news gathering because it's what they're clearly better at. And then we had to do a party. And on the way to the party, I started thinking, because I'm never not working for you folks, okay? Never. I'm never really off duty. And I got to thinking, you know, the Q4 FEC filing deadline, is that Eastern time or Pacific time? Because the ball had just dropped in New York, which meant it was three hours away from dropping in the Pacific time zone where I live. And I was like, well, does that mean that everything's done? Because all these candidates have been sending out emails and, and doing uh, the song and dance to try to get their numbers up as high as possible so they could have good news to report, which, of course, leads to more money coming in. So I texted Dave Leventhal, our money man here on this podcast, who, of course, works for the Center for Public Integrity, tracks all this stuff, right? I asked him, and Dave Leventhal, who looks through federal fundraising forms for a living, 
called me a dork. <laughs> and he's right. And he's right. Who is who in their right mind is like as old Lang Syne is playing and you're supposed to be present with your friends and family and reminiscing on the year that passed and dreaming about the year that will be. Whose first thought is, is the FEC deadline East Coast or West Coast? Me. So I got called a dork. But it's East Coast for, for those who, who might be wondering. And today we got some announcements. Good news tends to get announced early. Bad news tends to get announced late. So the people who felt that they had very good news and wanted the world to hear it ASAP are Mayor Pete and Andrew Yang. Mayor Pete announcing that he raised nearly $25 million. That would put him around where Bernie Sanders was in Q3 and where Mayor Pete was in Q2. Q3, he only raised $19 million, so now he's back up to the front of the pack. Andrew Yang, who raised around $5 million last time, has now raised $10 million. So he's not nearly where some of the big boys play, but he certainly is that $10 million is nothing to scoff at. And apparently he raised 4 million of it in the last week. Yang gang coming out in force with that green. Bernie Sanders, meanwhile, gave a little bit of a hint as to how much he raised. His campaign said that they had hit 5 million individual donations, which will lead the pack. Obviously, this is their way of saying that they have a sustained small money donor base. But I saw some speculation that if you draw that out based on how many donations that they had before Q4, that they could be around $28 million. That would put Bernie at number one again. He has been the financial dynamo. No hints from Biden. And very interestingly, we will see what Elizabeth Warren did. Because remember, Elizabeth Warren was out here, you know, Maybe hinting that things aren't going to be as rosy unless they start, unless people start ponying up money. So, and I know this, I followed Bailey the dog on this show a few weeks ago when I was talking to Andrew Heaton and uh, uh, Bailey the dog has uh, uh, been hitting me up. We got, we got a couple Bailey the dog uh, uh, tweets over the last few days. They all come with dog photos. I will say that, that as far as direct campaign mailing, uh, uh, they are pretty palatable. But if I'm going to play over under with Judge's total, here's how I would go. I think Bernie's going to be over 25. I think Warren's going to be under, along with all the other candidates not named Joe Biden. Indeed, I think Biden's going to be over Pete. We've seen some hints of financial strength from the Biden campaign recently. And 
it might be time for him to start calling in the big guns to really start raising money from the 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 big the big donors because you know Biden has there there is this press narrative that Biden has proven more buoyant than maybe some expected and I don't really know what to do with that because he's got the highest name recognition and before Mayor Pete really defined himself as a moderate, nobody else was really even in his lane. The fact that we've seen Mayor Pete do as well as he's done in Iowa, to me, uh, I don't know, that, that points out that he does, he's not on super firm ground. You know, yes, he's leading all the national polls, but national polls don't mean anything. They don't mean nothing. We don't have a national primary. So you should be looking at Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. I don't know. But I do think that he he's going to use that idea that, hey, they took their best shot at me, and uh, look, I'm still standing strong. So I'm the brand name that will march the Democrats forward. I think you are going to see a, a, a tightening of some Biden folks saying, hey, look, it's time to circle the wagons on this. If you don't if you don't think that Bernie can win and you have no idea, as nobody does, what the hell Elizabeth Warren's doing these days, then Mayor Pete, nice guy, too young, too gay, can't win. Joe Mentum, baby. I think you're going to start to see that. We're at we're 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 about at that point where the call is going to be where we're going to start to get the let's stop fighting. We're only helping Trump. And of course, mixed up in all of this is impeachment. Politics as we speak on this Wednesday, January 1st, 2020, President Trump has not been, at least according to scholars, impeached because Nancy Pelosi has not turned over the articles of impeachment to the Senate. I said before Congress went on their winter break so they might dine upon fine pheasant that this was a cover for Pelosi to basically make this an argument about whether or not there's going to be a fair trial in the Senate instead of making the congressional Democrats look like hypocrites because they rammed through an impeachment and then took a three-week pheasant break. I expect Pelosi's going to hand him over soon. I think we're going we're gonna to get into this. And, and right now, the big question is, are there any Republicans looking shaky? Mm, let's take a look. Who's got strong knees? Uh, we see any buckling on the horizon? Well, let's go ahead and look at the two most likely to defect. Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. They were the key votes on Kavanaugh. They wound up splitting on that. And I don't know. 
basically, we're this is how pathetic our our news threshold is over the holidays. That the the top news story was both Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins expressing unease at the fact that Mitch McConnell said that he would be in sync with the White House when it came to the trial and that they were open to witnesses. To be totally honest with you, I don't really know if there is a good scenario for Democrats with this Senate trial. Because I don't think if you want a a current senator on who's running for the Republican nomination to be president, I don't think a long witness trial is in the best interest of Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, Amy Klobuchar. All that Klobmentum could be right out the window if for the next three weeks leading up to Iowa, she has to be in D.C. Listening to long-winded testimonies, including a bleary-eyed Rudy Giuliani who said, drink in hand, not kidding, the following last night during a New Year's Eve party. I would testify, I would um, do demonstrations, I'd give lectures, I'd give summations, or I'd do what I do best, I'd try the case. Rudy went on to say that he would try the case as a racketeering case, which he invented. I'm not even going to check that one. What do you think would be a better use of Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Cory Booker, and Amy Klobuchar's time. Right before the February 3rd, all-important Iowa caucus, which on the Democratic side is far more predictive of who will get the nomination than it is for the Republicans. Where do you believe their time would be best spent? Listening to Rudy Giuliani do demonstrations and lectures or out pressing the flesh in Des Moines. Meanwhile, if the case is dismissed and it goes fast, then we kind of speed toward Donald Trump saying that he's been fully exonerated, which whether or not it's true is something that he will say. So again, I just genuinely don't know where the win is for the Democrats. I don't. I, look, I mean, I guess the win is he's impeached. But at the end of this, the we must do the right thing, historically, Democrats are going to wake up not unlike many folks did this morning. With a bit of a hangover. Politics! And that brings us to the end of our show today. Thank you to everybody who made 2019 such a great year. I'm very thrilled that 2020 is going to be even bigger, even better. We're going to have a really great interview on Friday's edition of the program. But we're going to end this one by thanking our Titanic $10 tier. And it is swelling! Friends, swelling, I dare say. These folks definitely want to see me in New Hampshire. They definitely want to see me in South Carolina. They want to make sure that I never see my apartment (laughs) in all of 2020. Lindsay, Stephen, Andrew, Squids, Mixtape, Jamie, Brian, Adam, Jonathan, D-Laser, Andy, Ball, Mike, and Brad. 
You want to join them? Head on over. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. If you are part of the $3 tier and above, you get two bonus podcasts each and every week. Of course, folks, you can always get in touch with me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You can always sign up for our free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. It is back up and running after our winter break. You can follow me on all platforms at Justin R. Young on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. And of course, brand new podcast, Raise the Dead, one more episode of this season. And it's a good one. In fact, say what, if you're part of the $3 tier, you heard a little hint of what may be coming up for Raise the Dead. <gasps> Something new. Something new. Oh, yeah, baby. It was right there in the Monday edition. Go ahead and check it out. Until next time, it's your old pal Justin Robert Young saying politics has three names. And I know that one show was talking about politics. I turned on CNN. They were talking about politics. And I heard a history book talk about politics. But this is the only show, friends, that talks about all three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>